That was fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time to encourage our moms. And to all of you moms out there, happy Mother's Day. Literally, we wouldn't be here without you. (laughs) But when we say happy Mother's Day, we're including foster moms, grandmothers who didn't just raise their own kids, but maybe you're raising your grandkids as well. We're including spiritual moms, those who have given your lives to raise up Kids who maybe not your own, but raise them up in the faith. All of you guys have been the picture of sacrificial, pure love. I don't know, when I think about the moms in my own life, my own mom, my two grandmothers, my wife, I've often asked myself, would I really know what love looked like if they weren't in my life? It's hard to imagine that. But I want to take a moment, just as a church, to pray for our moms today. If you're sitting with your mom, just why don't you put a hand on her shoulder, on her back. Kids, just surround your mom, give her some hugs, show her some love. Uh, If you're not with your mom, just put your mom in your mind. Um, But let's lift them up together as a church. So Father, man, I, I can't tell you how many times... When I try to think of an example of what your love looks like, it goes back to examples that I've seen from my own mom, my grandmothers, or my wife. It is such a thankless job, but these moms don't do it for the thanks. They do it ultimately out of love for the kids, those they're caring for. And God, I, I praise you that they're even in our lives. And I pray today, God, that those moms who are at home and picking up all these extra responsibilities that they never intended to take on, including homeschooling their kids, that you strengthen them and encourage them, that as they go back possibly to schooling their kids tomorrow, they have a fresh burst of energy, that you recharge their hearts and their minds, their bodies. God, that you allow them to know that you are with them and working through all of this with them. God, for those moms who aren't able to be with their kids, either their kids are grown and they're out of the house and they're isolated from one another, living in different states, or maybe just not comfortable visiting each other. God, I pray that you uh, sit with those moms who can't be with their kids today, that you comfort them, that you give them that double dose of just your love and your peace, that if they're forced to see their own kids through a screen, God, that you allow that time to be especially meaningful still. And for kids who who want to celebrate their moms but they're at a distance, give us creative ideas and ways to express our love and gratitude to them. And God, I can't help but to remember also that there are those, I can even think of several in my mind, who have lost their mom recently in the past year, maybe in the past two years. And today's hard. Today's sad. And that's okay. As everyone else is celebrating, I pray that you also will sit beside those who are in grief. That you let them know that you see them. That you're with them. And God, as we remember all of this, and as we stop to remember these moms, I pray, Father, that your love for us would be even more tangible as we think and consider them. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for their sacrifice. Thank you for the joy they've added, 
sense of love they've added to all of us. Bless them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 We love you, moms. You're rock stars. You're rock stars. Um, well, we're going to jump in now to this series. Uh, we're going through the book of Acts together in the New Testament. And before I jump in, you know, when I was a kid, if I didn't have anything going on after school, my typical routine was that I would go home, I would do my homework as fast as I could so that I could run outside and play on the basketball hoop that was in our driveway. And sometimes the kid next door would join me, but most of the time I'd just go out there by myself and I would just take a basketball, take a few warm-up shots. And after a few warm-up shots, without fail, the scenario would always arise in my mind where I was the guy the team was depending on to make the final shot of the championship game and win it for everybody. So I would imagine that Three seconds left on the clock. I would even count out loud sometimes, which I know is kind of dopey, but hey, I did it. And then I would take the ball, three seconds left, throw up a shot. And if I missed it, it was amazing how the clock just automatically had two seconds left on it. Like It just grew time. Just enough time so that I could go get the rebound and throw up another shot. And I would keep going about this until I finally made the shot. The, the imaginary crowd in my mind would cheer and I would be the best basketball player ever. It was fantastic. And I'm sure my mom was looking outside watching this whole thing and realizing how absolutely ridiculous it all was. When I wasn't facing opposition, I was just by myself, I was really good. But then my tall friends would come over. <laughs> and well, I was pretty short, so it didn't take a whole lot to find a tall friend. And my tall friends would come over and when we would start playing basketball, I would throw up the shot and all of a sudden it would get blocked in my face. See, opposition started to show what kind of player I really was. Opposition reveals what something truly is. And this is one reason why, on the flip side, we don't joke around about the love of a mom. Because we know that if there's anything trying to oppose a mom's child, that mom is going to dunk all over the opposition. Opposition reveals something for what it really is. It shows that mom's love is real. And as we turn to the series of the book of Acts, we're calling The Church in Motion. We talked about in chapter 1 how Jesus appeared before his disciples before he ascended to heaven. And he said, I'm going to give you a mission. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why does the church of Jesus exist? Why are we here? To be his witnesses. To tell the world about him. And then Acts 2, we see the Spirit comes and it empowers them for that particular mission. And it's amazing. God's doing incredible things. In Acts chapter 3... Peter and John even walk up to the temple and there's a man who's born blind, 40 years old, never walked in his life. And he's asking for money and Peter and John say, we got something way better for you than money, my man. Why don't you stand up? And the guy does and he starts doing jumping jacks. And it's amazing. These things, it seems as if nothing can possibly stand in the way of this movement of Jesus. But then we get to Acts chapter 4 and we see a first sign of real opposition. And the question becomes, 
Will this opposition ultimately make this movement of Jesus fall on his face? <laughs> will Peter and John throw up a shot and it'll just get blocked on them? How will this whole thing stand up? What kind of movement is this really? And so we're going to start, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4 verse 1. But before we do that, I'm going to take a second just to speak to us. Because without a doubt, we're in a season where our own confidence, our own commitment to God's mission is being tested. For us, this has been eight weeks of being stuck inside and unsure what the future really holds. Leading us all to feel various levels of frustration. You might describe yourself as feeling outright fed up or exhausted or anxious. That's real. This pandemic seems to be casting this ever-lengthening shadow of either doubt, suspicion, cynicism, or discouragement over the world. And if that begins to cloud our perspective, we'll be tempted to just say, you know what, I'm putting down this whole mission of Jesus thing, this whole living for Jesus thing, and, and just, just let me know when this thing is over. In the meantime, I'm going to finish Netflix. Literally all of it. I just, I'll pick it back up when this whole thing is over. But despite the opposition we face, we can't check out. The world needs the hope and the message of Jesus more than ever. And so my prayer for all of us is that as we read this story today, that it breathes fresh hope and confidence in all of us, no matter what we're facing. Our God is with us. So we see this scene to give us a little backdrop before we read it. Or Peter and John. Jesus heals this crippled man through Peter and John. He stands up. He's rejoicing. People are amazed. They're in awe. But now the temple guards are getting word of this quote-unquote disturbance. So let's check this out together. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1. This is a pretty, uh, pretty amazing story. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John, this priest and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man had been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to lead the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that we may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in, his, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Why don't you pray these words after me? Say, God, I give to you my anxiety, my discouragement, or whatever I'm feeling. Show me who you are. Open my heart and my mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, one thing that I love about Jesus is that when he invited his disciples to follow him, he never tried to trick them or manipulate them and that it was going to be just a smooth ride. He never tried to entice them with false information. He actually tells them straight up in John 16, 33. He says, in this world you are going to have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus promised that following him would lead to true life. But he never promised it was going to be easy. And if we follow Jesus long enough, we will encounter opposition. Like Pastor David said last week, and he did a phenomenal job last week. The church in Acts chapter 2 and 3 was kind of on its honeymoon. It was experiencing amazing things. It was growing. There were some incredible things, including a 40-plus-year-old beggar who was healed. But here comes the first sign of opposition. When the crowds were amazed at Peter and John healing this man, there was a particular group of people who were not. The Sadducees, priests, and temple guards. Why were they so annoyed, upset, or irritated? A little backdrop, historical backdrop will help us here. See, the big beards of the Jewish religious life were the chief priests. Verse 6 actually gives us their names at this time. Annas and Caiaphas. Technically, while it says that Annas is the chief priest, technically Caiaphas was the chief priest at this time. But I think Luke knew who really had the power. And that was his father-in-law, Annas who was high priest emeritus. But he's the one who really controlled things. Because Annas was a very wealthy man. But how did he get all of his money? Well, if you were a common Jew wanting to come and offer a sacrifice at the temple, the only place where you could buy a worthy sacrifice was from one of Annas's booths. 
either out, right outside the temple or right in the court of the Gentiles. Annas had a monopoly on all sell of sacrifices or animals to sacrifice. And he charged exorbitant prices. And how did he get away with it? Well, it helps when your family members are all the temple guards. And then with all the money he was getting off the backs of poor Jewish people, he used that money to now bribe the Roman governors at the time to continually appoint him or one of his family members to the priesthood. Talk about dirty. Like this guy was as corrupt as it gets. He would have sold his own mom to stay in power. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) This guy was just wicked. So you remember the whole scene before Jesus was crucified when Jesus went into the temple and flipped the tables? Whose tables was he flipping? Annas's. Are we wondering why Caiaphas and Annas pushed all their weight around to have Jesus crucified? He was calling out their corruption, their mob-level activity. And so Caiaphas and Annas, they had Jesus crucified. And they thought they had squashed this movement once and for all until they now see and hear about these guys, Peter and John, talking about it. Now to add even more tension to all of this, Annas and Caiaphas and the high priestly family were a member of a party called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees believed fundamentally that there was no such thing as supernatural miracles and certainly not something about like the resurrection of the dead. And so when they see Peter and John saying that this man had been healed and the crowds were believing it, and on top of that, they were preaching that Jesus, the guy that they thought they crucified, was now alive? They saw this. These Galilean, uneducated Galilean men as not only religious, but also political threats. The interesting thing to me is Caiaphas, Annas, they could have easily gone to the tomb and investigated why it was empty. They could have easily gone to the once now healed, once lame, but now healed, crippled man and say, what happened here? But they weren't interested in the truth. They were only interested in their power. Blinded by their attempts to try to keep control. So they arrested Peter and John right away. But waited until the next morning to actually convict them with a blasphemy charge. One, because it was too late. Two, probably because they wanted to gather a majority on the Sanhedrin uh, to make sure that the, 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 the priestly, like the senate or Supreme Court of the day, to make sure that they could get a conviction. They wanted to make sure they had a majority. But, despite what powerful leaders plan, they never stand taller than our God. I'm going to say that again. Despite what powerful leaders may plan, they never stand taller than our God. They could arrest the apostles, but they could never contain the gospel. And we see the movement of Jesus was growing even as opposition arose. As followers of Jesus today, we felt opposition too. But just in a different way. We may not face chief priests. 
but we've certainly felt the social, if not at times political, pressure to be silent. We live in a pluralistic society, meaning that the overall story is that everyone can have his or her own truth. Just keep it to yourself. Strong religious convictions are often met with a reflex of suspicion. There's a book called Good Faith. It should be on the screen, a copy of the cover. Written by the, the Barna Research Group, which, which did some research and polling to, say, to understand what is the dominant mindset toward Christians, Christianity, anyone who claims Jesus is the only way to heaven, or anyone who feels a responsibility to share his or her faith, or anyone who goes to church regularly, what is the dominant attitude toward them? Well, a few decades ago, the, the dominant attitude was really, if, if you went to church regularly, if you felt a responsibility to share your faith, I may not agree with you, but you're at least a principled or moral person. But what the research of the Barna Group, which they display in this book, laid out is that that attitude is somewhat changed. And that for a large portion of our society, those who go to church regularly, feel a responsibility to share their faith, believe Jesus is the only way to God and to heaven and to eternal life, they're viewed more as extremists. Or at least those who are just out of touch with reality. At best, our society is willing to tolerate the inoffensive elements of Christianity. Or the, when I say inoffensive, I mean those elements that, that don't challenge their current conviction. At worst, our society is hostile for those who are all in for Jesus. So we wonder why we often feel, as Christians, sidelined, overwhelmed, misunderstood, anytime we try to talk about Jesus or to live out our faith in a more public way. I don't know about you, but even if I'm going to somebody with, with love for them, wanting them to know the truth about Jesus, I am concerned that if I share Jesus, will I be typecasted? Even if I'm as kind as I can be, will I be typecasted as hypocritical, as bigoted, as judgmental? Many of us have felt our conversations die out the moment we mention our faith, or we potentially lost friends. We felt that social pressure that even when we go out in love, wanting to share the truth that we know and we believe, we still feel the pressure that somehow that's not okay. And, that, and the temptation that comes out of that is, is we want to just shrink back. I, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I don't want people to think I'm out of touch with reality. So maybe I'll just be nice. And then I'll just, I don't know, the whole, I'll just make it Jesus and me over here. Because I don't want to be controversial. And while Jesus and me, that kind of faith may work behind the scenes, it, it still doesn't take into account the mission that Jesus has actually given us. And that's to be his witnesses and despite what the pressures may be around us, our mission 
doesn't change. And I know that opposition feels like a reason for us to be silent at times. But what I see in this story in Acts chapter 4 is that actually opposition is an opportunity for boldness. The morning after, Peter and John are arrested. The Sanhedrin, the Senate, the Supreme Court of the day, they, they, they called in these revolutionaries along with the lame man who's now standing beside them. And this was a pretty imposing group made up of rulers, priests, scribes, roughly 70 of them all together. And I want us to try to imagine this scene. We have two ordinary looking Galilean men with this this, this once lame man now standing beside them. That's it. And now you have 70 scowling beards <laughs> looking right at you. And the first question they ask right away is one that's meant to try to go for conviction right away. By what power or by what name did you do this? And the reason why that question is trying to catch them is because in their own law, Deuteronomy 13, if they gave an answer to that question, any answer other than Jehovah, the Lord himself, they could be executed for blasphemy. But on top of that, the question wasn't just trying to catch them. It was also meant to try to insult them because they're untrained, unprofessional preachers. Who do they think they are? That's the essence of their question. Who do you think you are? And if we look at the 70 priests, scribes, elders, and added together all the years that they had studied God's law, it would equal into thousands of years when you start multiplying all of that together. And these two men, they'd been with Jesus three years. Who do you think you are? But I can imagine in this moment that Peter and John, while it would be so easy to buckle under that pressure, they're, they're thinking of the words of their own master who told them, Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't go on the defense. <laughs> he actually goes on the offense. And he says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to, you, to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, catch this, whom you, I can imagine he's looking right at Caiaphas when he said that, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Woe, Peter. And, but he doesn't stop there. He even quotes some of their own scriptures back to them, right out of Psalm 118. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is not intimidated at all. 
I can imagine, though, that the man who, crippled man now healed, is standing over here next to John. He's like, John, John, what's your boy doing? Like, does he not know who he's talking to? He's going to get us killed. But see, our boldness is a direct reflection of our confidence. Our boldness is a direct reflection of our confidence. When we face opposition to our faith, whether it's in the form of somebody treating us differently for what we believe, or whether it's really just a frustrating, discouraging season that makes us want to bail out like this one, it reveals where our confidence ultimately is. And we see the way that Peter responded here reveals that his confidence was not in, in, in his feelings. His confidence was not in his ability to speak well or his clever ideas. His confidence was not chained to the opinions of people. His confidence was not bound to the value of his portfolio. Had his trust and his hope rested in any of those things, the threat of the Sanhedrin would have diluted his fire and his spirit and they would have won. But when our confidence is in the one who was crucified for us and rose again from the dead in order to give us new life, that changes things. Herod, Pontius Pilate, chief priests, they thought they got Jesus. But when our Lord entered death, God showed that it was his plan all along to freely give his life as the sacrifice for the world and he said all who believe will be now and for all eternity set free from the oppression that sin and death have over them and they will be raised to new life in him so when the going got tough what could man do to peter nothing not even death could separate him from the love of god The world could do its worst. But Jesus was his life, even in death. And every time we choose to trust Jesus in the midst of opposition, our trust for him grows. I can think back to many times my own past. For man, I'm a bit ashamed that, that I didn't speak more boldly, that I wasn't more forthcoming about my own faith or who I was, that I feel like I missed opportunities. I think we've all felt those. But remember, Peter himself denied Jesus three times. But he didn't allow the past shame to keep him from being bold today. Our God is not a God of condemnation. But each day is a new day and an opportunity to trust him and to take another step toward trusting him. And when we take a step toward trusting him, guess what? We're also taking a step away from trusting the things of this world. And that does something to us. That solidifies our foundation. Paul, who knew suffering and opposition as well as anybody, he said suffering or opposition produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Just sit on that for a while. (laughs) 
But when we choose to take that step forward toward him in the hard days, in the midst of opposition, what then? What promise of God becomes ours? But when we step out in boldness, we find that we never step out alone. Basketball seems to be the theme of this sermon. And when I was in high school, I played on a basketball league, a rec league, just for fun, with a bunch of my friends. And my friends were far better at soccer than they were at basketball, which means that they could run a whole, whole lot, and they could pass a lot. But man, we were terrible at shooting. Until one of our friends named Rick, who was a real basketball player, actually joined us in his offseason. He joined our team. Now, Rick was good. He actually went on to play for the University of Tennessee for a bit. But when Rick walked out onto the court with us, all of a sudden, man, we had this like confident swagger. Because we got better? No. Simply because he was walking out with us. And see, our boldness is directly related to do we know who's walking out with us. And as followers of Jesus, I believe that we're often timid, though, because we think that this mission of God depends on us. I've often used excuses for why I've not been bold. Like, well, well who, who do I think I am, right? Like, 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 I'm not Peter. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not some other evangelist. But if you see, Peter and John didn't put any confidence in their own name. The only confidence they put them, put, they had was that they knew Jesus. And Jesus alone was enough. He was enough for them to simply step out and be bold. Even though the Sanhedrin was way taller than them, they could not be taller than Jesus. And I've also said before, well, like, like what do I know? I'll be bold after I've, I've studied a lot more, read a lot more. But again, these were common, uneducated men. And the result of their own witness caused an entire room of big beards to be completely astonished, the text says. Why? They recognized they had been with Jesus. See, no amount of seminary or PhD study can can possibly compete with learning to be a student of Jesus. I will not learn boldness if I'm placing my confidence in my own intellect, because my intellect will fail, but only as I learn to depend and lean upon Christ. Or the other excuse I've used. What can I really do? I'm not winsome enough. I'm not persuasive enough. I'm not outgoing enough. I'm not fill in the blank. But what silenced the opposition was not what Peter and John could do in their own strength. It's what God did through them that they could not have done on their own strength. The 40-year-old man was standing right beside them. Only God could do something like that. People don't want to be drawn to our winsome personality or our persuasiveness. They want Jesus. 
And that's what we're pointing people to is the one who is with and in us. Jesus himself. See, the mission of God never depended on who we are, what we know, or what we can do. It's always dependent on who goes with us. And each time we step out in bold love to talk about Jesus, we can be sure he's stepping out with us. Well, after all this, the chief priests realize they have nothing on these guys. If they tried to punish them, the crowds would revolt. And they couldn't really refute their claims either. So they just let them go and said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Well, they ran out. They ran to their friends, the other church members, and they started rejoicing and praising God. Peter and John. I mean, I would have loved to have been there just as they praised God. But what I want us to see is after praising God and sovereignty and the fact that he worked even in spite of all these worldly powers, they prayed for three things. And I want us to imagine, as I close today, how our perspective might change if we started praying these three things daily. Number one, we find these in Acts 4, 29 and 30. They said, Lord, consider their threats. Lord, these threats seem big, tall to us. It's discouraging. They make us feel anxious. But Lord, we know they're not bigger than you. So you, we, instead of trying to carry these things on our own, we give them to you. You can handle these. They may be taller than us, but they're not taller than you. Number two, I'm so challenged by this one. They said, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, we hand the threats to you. Just show us how to be faithful. They said, we're your servants. Our lives are not our own. But out of love for you and love for the world, God, just just let us be bold. Be singularly yours. Free to follow you, unencumbered or hindered by confidence in anything else. May our confidence rest in you. That we might be bold. And then number three. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They recognized this mission couldn't be accomplished in their power, but it needed his power. But notice, they did not say, God, use your power to rain down fire on all those who oppose us. Or God, use your power to give us all the control and the power. If that had been their prayer, that wasn't really, that wasn't the focus of Jesus. Jesus came to redeem, to restore, to lift up, to love. And they're praying along that same, God, same line. God, may you use your power in ways that set people free to heal and redeem and, and reveal to the world that this is not a human effort. This is ultimately you at work through us. See, all of this is, is, is an impulse of love for God and for the world. Boldness is never a reason to be a jerk. But we are bold because we want men and women across this world to know who our God truly is and to receive his life for themselves. 
And it says after they prayed those three things, God, consider the threats, enable us to be bold. You work it out in your power. It says that the place shook and they were filled with the Spirit and they continued to go out in boldness. And each time we step out in bold love to talk about Jesus, we can be sure he's stepping out with us. Listen, before I close today, if you're watching and you don't know Jesus, if you've never turned from your own way of living and turned to serve him and to love him, if you've never confessed that you've tried to live your own way and sought to give your life to him and receive the fact that, that he died for you out of love for you and he rose again to give you new life, if you've never received that for yourself, I want to talk to you more about what that means. If we were here in person together, we, we could truly talk that out in person. But I have my email address right here on the screen. Will you shoot me an email? I'd love, if you have questions, I can talk to you about that. If anything, if you don't really want to converse over email, you'd rather do it over the phone, just shoot me an email and say, hey, I'd love a call. That's fine too. But reach out to me. I'd love to follow up with you about that. That email goes only to me. No one else sees it. Please reach out. But for us as the people of God, for those who have given our lives to Jesus, each time we step out in bold love to talk about Jesus, he's stepping out with us. Let's pray. God, along the lines of that last prayer, we pray it. We say, God, consider the threats. Consider the discouragement, the anger, the anxiety. Consider the various powers that be that seem to, to, to pressure us to be silent. Consider the, the, the family members or the friends who have made fun of us. Consider these things, God. They seem big to us and overwhelming to us, but they're not bigger than you. And as we hand those things over to you, God, enable us to be fully and completely, confidently yours. That we may declare your word in boldness. Being unapologetic for the truth that we know in Jesus <laughs> and, and unreserved in our love for you and for, other, for others. And may you confirm all of this in your power. May you come do in the life of this church and churches across our communities what only you can do. May you come in power and move in a way that only you can. In the mighty name of Jesus, we boldly pray. Amen.